the psalms originally were to be sung. And to sing them each week might be a little difficult, but each time we do it, we try to add some aspect of music into it so that we can get a a flavor and a taste for what uh, singing these uh, words back to God might be like. And so we're going to start today in Psalm chapter 19. We're going to read the entire psalm. So let's bring uh, God's word into God's presence and allow him to uh, minister to us the word of the Lord. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warmed and keeping them. There is great reward. So who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. And so, Lord, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's allow these words to be our prayer today. Let the words of my mouth 
Father, your word is truth. Lord, you see past uh, what we see in each other. You see deep into the, into the heart. You know our motives. And so, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, that you'd allow the power of your perfect word to give us grace, truth. Father, comfort where comfort is needed. Rebuke where rebuke is needed. And Lord, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Thank you for the truth that comes uh, through the power of your word. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So three voices. In Psalm 19, we see three ways that God uh, speaks into our life. You'll notice in verses 1 through 6 that God speaks to us through creation In verses 7 through 12, that God speaks to us through his word. And then finally, at the end, David, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God begins to speak to him in the form of the heart. God convicts him where he is. You know, I have to admit, as a father, I think the one area, my wife may have more than one, but the one area I know I personally need to grow is in the area of listening. I love to listen to my own voice. And by that, it may not be the audible voice, but the internal voice. When I walk into the house, I've got a message going in my mind, a dialogue, a conversation that's working itself out. And often when my kids speak, when my wife speaks, uh, my ears fail to listen. And yet, uh, the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love. But if we are unwilling or unable to listen, we therefore are unable to love. See, if we're unwilling to listen, we are incapable of love. And on the flip side, if we're going to grow as fathers, as husbands, as men, in that aspect of God's love, we first have to learn to listen to God so that in listening to God, we can experience the love of God. And so in Psalm 19, what David is laying out are these three ways in which we need to allow God's voice to really speak and to reveal who he is. Because God's constantly speaking. And see, that's where the psalmist begins. The heavens declare the glory of God, skies proclaiming the works of his hands. You know, those two words, heavens and skies, are intended to capture the fullness of all creation. That not just the heavens and the skies, but every aspect of creation is constantly declaring God's glory and majesty to every ear, to every nation, to every person alive on the face of the earth. And he says it in two ways, and they're actually these verbs, proclaim, declare, are continuous verbs, meaning that they never stop. There isn't a day where God stops speaking. There isn't a day where God's voice is silent. The heavens, the creation, all of it is constantly speaking of his reality, his majesty, his greatness. God is evident in creation. And yet if you look down in verses 4, 5, and 6, the poetry of the psalmist, the songwriter uses this metaphor of a bride or a, a groom coming out of the church, excited for 
the celebration of his marriage. Or it uses the language of a, a strong man coming forth to go, to go into battle as it's a, a picture of the sun rising in the morning and going down in the evening, that you see the strength and the greatness of God. The story is creation speaks. You know, and I think in Colorado, we listen. We listen when creation speaks. I've heard many people say that creation, that nature is my sanctuary. Why gather with the body of Christ when I can just be with God in creation? Now, there's an element of truth to that statement because the psalmists are constantly saying that God's character, his voice, his presence can be encountered as we experience what he has created. In some ways, like an artist, when you look at a great piece of art, you can pick up some aspects of the personality of that individual. But see, what verses 1 through 6 are communicating is the voice of creation is a wordless voice. Did you notice that? He's describing this voice that goes out, this voice that is great, that is difficult to miss, but on the other hand, it is a wordless voice that we can know God through creation, but we really can't know God. We can know about God, but we really can't understand the character of God. Because see, in creation, God doesn't speak with words. And see, we understand that because we also communicate in the same way. My wife can say a lot with a look. Now, I, I don't always get the message, but I know that something's being communicated. Because see, in that nonverbal communication, and you know, after 20 years of marriage, I should be getting it better. I know something's being said. I know something's being communicated, but without words, it's, it's easy to miss. Now, a friend of mine uh, recalled this story a number of years back that he was taking his daughter to preschool. I think his wife was out of town. He got her dressed that morning. His daughter wanted to wear this beautiful dress that I think was really only supposed to be reserved for church or some kind of special event, but the heart of a father, you know, you want to please your daughter. And so he put this dress on her and he went to school and he's walking in the front doors and as he's uh, dropping his daughter off, he sees this woman and uh, yeah, he knows he's caught her eye because her attention was directed uh, right at him, and he thought the whole time that she must be uh, noticing my, my attraction, my, my physique. She's obviously mesmerized by me. And so he gets in the car, you know, he's, he's driving to work, and he's feeling great. Uh, later, he gets a call from the school, and evidently, he put his daughter's dress on backwards. And see, the stare of this woman was not the stare of admiration or attraction. It was actually sympathy uh, for this child. Because just because a message is sent, when it's sent non-verbally, the communication may be missed. And see, that's what he's saying in verses uh, 1 through 6, that the heavens speak. They communicate of who God is. But God cannot be known through creation alone. And that's why so many people, when they look at the stars, they hear no voice of God. All they see is a burning flame of gas. 
When they look at creation in the mountains, all they see is time and pressure creating a rift that eventually formed the mountains. That though God is evident in creation, not everybody gets the message. Because that message is not communicated through words, it's communicated in some ways intuitively. That God is evident in creation, but not everyone hears, not everyone sees. And so we need something more than just creation. It's good to get outside and to hike, it's good to fish, it's good to be in nature, but that's not enough, as the psalmist is going to say, to revive the soul. Now, I know we get into nature to revive the soul, but see, really ask the question, what does nature communicate about God? What can you really know about God, his character, and then beyond that, When you're standing before Niagara Falls or before a great mountain, before creation and the vistas and all the beauty of that creation is, where do you fit? And what's God's heart towards you when you see something massive and grand? You think of the expanse of the universe. See, that was Psalm 8 where David says, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. God, I need something more than just the words of creation, I need words that are audible. And so when he gets down in verse 7, he begins to describe not the message of creation, but the message of Scripture. And he uses another, a number of uh, synonyms. He says the law of the Lord. He calls it the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. And following each statement is an adjective that describes the effect. It says that the law of the Lord is perfect, or it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's true. That on the one hand, God's word is perfect, meaning it's flawless. That God's word is sure, we can trust it. God's word is right, which means it can guide our lives. And then finally, it says, the rules of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. When it says they're altogether righteous, it means the entire word is righteous. There's not a part of it that is less righteous than others. Instead, the entirety of Scripture is perfect to guide us, to direct us, and to show us the character of God. Now, here's what's fascinating, and you may miss this. In verses 1 through 6, you notice the name used for God is God. Now, in the Hebrew, that's the generic name Elohim. It's the name you may see in Genesis chapter 1, El, Elohim. It's the generic name for God. But see, when you get to verse 7, you notice that that name has suddenly changed. Now, that would be very significant in the Hebrew language because now instead of just Elohim, because see, that's the God you can know from creation, the generic God, the general God. But see, when you get to verse 7 and you start listening to the words of Scripture, the name becomes personal. It's the capital name, Lord, which means Yahweh, which is God's personal covenantal name. Now, if you read the story of Scripture, you know that name was given to Moses. That God came to Moses, Moses says, you know, God, who are you? And he says, I am the I am, I am Yahweh. And that name was then communicated to Israel. It's so important to know that that name was communicated to Israel when they were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. 
that Israel was in bondage. They cried out to Elohim. He revealed himself as Yahweh. He revealed himself as a covenant maker. And he said to his people, now that I've rescued you out, now that you're free, now that you have been saved, I want to give you my law. You are going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And see, when he gave us his law, he wasn't saying, hey, do this and I'll love you. Rather, what he was communicating to us is this is what a people looks like who are loved by God. This is how a people live who know the personal name and have intimacy with God. You see, what he's saying in that simple word, switching from Elohim to Yahweh, is it's through Scripture that we experience intimacy, that we actually begin to hear and to know the voice and the character of God. You see, without Scripture, we would not know God's love and we would not experience His grace. See, without Scripture, we would not know His love and we would not experience his grace the only thing that can revive the soul as he says in verse 7 is when God reveals his personal name to us when we experience that sense of intimacy and and notice the way that he describes in verses 7 and 8 the impact that scripture has on our life on the one hand in verse 7 he revives the soul again in verse 7 he makes wise the simple There is rejoicing in the heart. There is enlightening in the eyes. And then in verse 10, he says that more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey dripping from the honeycomb. That there is a sense in which when you experience the personal nature of God, his word begins to become a delight. Now, we're going to talk about that in a moment because how can law be delightful? And when someone lays down a list of rules, do you initially say, hey, that's sweet. It reminds me of honey to look at that list of laws. Or is it something that is as precious as gold? Do you stare at it and mesmerize? Think about the difference it can make in your life. There's something that's going on in this passage that's deeper than what it it appears. But when God makes himself known, there's something that begins to happen. You see, it's only through his word that we would know the character of his love. It's only through his word that we would really know the character of God's love. Now, there are many in Colorado, and maybe you've spoken to them, and there's many across the United States and the world that will say, I don't need the Bible to know there is a creator who loves me. People will say, you know, I don't don't believe in the Bible because when I go there, all I see is law. And so law doesn't really relate to love. I want to be loved for who I am. I don't want someone telling me what to do. And so they'll often say, I don't need the Bible to know that God or the creator is love. Well, here's the question. Here's the question we need to ask. Where does the idea that God is love originate? Where do you look? Do you start with nature? Many naturalists have gone into nature, and instead of seeing comfort, mercy, love, grace, they see violence, death, suffering, hardship. Does nature communicate that the creator is loving? How about a thunderstorm, a tsunami? Does the weather communicate love? Or let's go to the creation itself and the highest of creation. Let's look at human history. 
Do you see in human history a creator who loves us, who's given us people who care for us and care for one another that we love mankind? Where do you see this idea that God is love? Or how about the religions? Many will say, you know, basically all religions teach the same thing. The basic message is the same. Well, the reality is that's just not true. There's only one message that puts love at the center, for God so loved. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that so whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's only one religion that puts love at the center of God's character. See, others put love at the periphery. It's an aspect of his character. But see, Christianity says it's central. Because, see, we love because he first loved us. And the expression through which we know God is the sending of Jesus Christ, which was an act of self-sacrificial love for us. You see, the character in Christianity in the gospel and in God through the Bible is at the center of God, there is an aspect of love. So if anyone says that God is love, the origination of that idea starts with Scripture. The Bible reveals the love of God. And so we see that in his personal name. He reveals his name to us. Because when someone is intimate with you, they, they share themselves. They share who they are. Now, if you don't know them well, they may fabricate who they are. They may share stories about themselves. But when you draw into God's character, he reveals himself. And he calls us children. And see, so we are to call him father. In Hosea 11.1, 1, it says, Out of Egypt, God called his son. Now, if you remember, it was in Egypt that God revealed his name, Yahweh. Because see, in revealing his name, God revealed his heart as father. And he called us his children. And it's through his word we experience the heart of our father God. You know, you think of Jesus. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, our father. That Jesus came to reveal the heart of God, our father, and to know his redeeming love. See, it's through the word of God that we experience his love. But on the second hand, also through his word, we experience his grace. Because if you notice, as you get down to the end of this passage in verse 10 and following, that David is describing Scripture probably in ways that we don't pursue it. He talks about uh, Scripture as gold, and it's as sweet as honey. And so picking up in, in verse 10, it says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey dripping from the comb. See, what's transferred here is he's gone from law as a guide for life, and he's now looking into the law as a revealing of God's character. He's seeing into the law, and he's looking into something that's now radiant. There's this switch that's starting to take place. That is, he knows how God has redeemed him by revealing his name, rescuing him out of darkness, calling us his children. What's happening now is as God is delighted in us, you see, David is starting to, to delight in God. And he's seeing in God's law something that I don't think we often see. He's seeing something beautiful. He's captivated by something that is majestic, and now it has a taste and it has a value that's greater than the things of earth. David's heart is beginning to be changed. 
You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a great book on the Psalms. If you want to pick it up, I think it's called Meditations of the Psalms or something like that. Um, Reflections on the Psalms. And in it, he spends a number of pages on Psalm 19. And C.S. Lewis, who's a brilliant thinker, was very confused by this passage. Because he started asking the question, how can laws be delightful? You know, how can rules be sweet? And this is what he said. He writes, one can well understand this being said of God's mercies. But what David is actually talking about is God's law, his commands, his ordinance, which means his rules about our conduct. You see, this for me was very, very mysterious. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not commit adultery. I can understand that you can and must respect these statutes and and try to obey them and assent to them in your heart. But it's very hard to find out how they could be to anyone delicious. How could they exhilarate? We may obey them, but surely they could be more aptly compared to a dentist's forceps or maybe to the front of a battle line rather than to something enjoyable or sweet. He goes on to say, this is the language of a man being ravished by something beautiful. If we cannot share his experience, we shall be the losers. See, what David is beginning to see is in God's law, he's starting to see a grace. He's starting to see, as he calls in verse 14, you notice the name he ends with, He's starting to see the need for a redeemer. Because see, as he looked at creation, he saw God's glory. As he heard scripture, he sees God's character. But as scripture begins to meditate on his heart, he's starting to see his sin. And he's recognizing his need for a savior. Isn't that how it happens? We see God's glory. We know that God is great. We believe he's created us and he exists. But as you start to get into his word, you start to see his character. God is pure. God is righteous. God is good. God is just. And the more you start to see God, the more the Holy Spirit starts to reveal yourself. And you know, I need a rock. I need a redeemer. Because see, in verses 12 and following, it almost seems as if something is out of place. Verses 1 through 11, David is pretty much transfixed on God. His eyes are focused on his character, but in verse 12, suddenly he's beginning to think about himself. And his eyes are not on God's character or his word. Rather, he's starting to see some inner faults. He's starting to recognize, I've got some brokenness in me that needs to be addressed. So let's pick it up again in verse 12. After he's meditated on creation and now spent time in God's word, he starts to recognize himself and he asks the question, You know, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. How can you be innocent of things you do not know? You see the tension that he's creating. On the one hand, we can see our errors, but he's saying, God, would you declare me innocent of the things that I do not see in myself? Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion, meaning let them not rule over me. Then he says, then I'll be blameless, innocent of great 
transgressions. And here's his prayer. After the Holy Spirit has convicted him, this prayer comes out, Father, let the words of my mouth, may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O my rock and my redeemer. On the one hand, he recognizes his errors. But see, the thing that David starts to see is there's stuff that I don't know in myself. God, would you address my hidden faults? Because here's the truth. Your greatest problem are not the sins you know. It's the stuff you don't know. And you know why you don't know it. It's not because those sins are so small. It's because they're too big. They're so big that they're a part of everyday life. They're like water, and you don't see the hidden faults because the hidden faults refer to the motives, the pride, the self-righteousness, the self-centeredness. And he's saying to God, Lord, I know my errors, but would you even wipe out my hidden faults? Would you forgive the things that I do not see? And and you see this tension in David because on the one hand, he says how holy God is and how great he is and how majestic and pure. And yet now in God's presence, he's starting to see his own sinfulness. Which would lead me to conclude every time that David came to Scripture, he was depressed. And maybe you feel that way sometimes. Because every time you go to Scripture, what you're doing is you're seeing yourself. And I think as Christians, often the mode we fall into is sin maintenance. That we go to the Bible to maintain my behavior. We start to see where I've broken God's commands. I'm not living up to the standards. And, you know, that's a part of the Holy Spirit's conviction. But the problem is often that's where we stay. And see, when we stay going to the law and just seeing ourselves, we're assuming the Bible is about me. We're assuming the purpose of the law, first and foremost, is just to show me my sin, which certainly it does. But as you read the Old Testament, you realize the purpose of the law was to point us to the Redeemer. The purpose of the temple and the sacrifice was to show us that one could sacrifice who would cover my faults and know my hidden sins and yet still accept me. That see, the purpose of the law is that in the law, we would see our Redeemer, which we know his name to be the personal name of Jesus. That when we come into God's word and the Holy Spirit begins to convict, and as you start to see your hidden faults, the place we have to run to is the gospel. The place that we have to run to is Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but many of us on our wedding day, you went to 1 Corinthians 13, right? You have that read? How'd you do with that? Love is patient. Is that working out? Love is kind? Yeah. Does not envy, does not boast. How about this one? Keeps no record of wrongs? Really? That's the good stuff, right? How am I going to argue? It's not boastful. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not proud. You know, it perseveres, all that kind of, I kind of forgot it a little bit. When you look at that and you see that, it's beautiful, but it's pretty weighty. I mean, who here keeps no record of wrongs? Who always perseveres, always hopes, always? I don't think so. See, you see in that our sin, but see, if you don't start to see that Jesus is the only one that can fill that, because Jesus was faithful. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And when you go to Psalm 19, you've got to see the fulfillment of the law 
The fulfillment of the law is revealed through the law. And see, that fulfillment of the law is in Jesus. That when the psalmist says that the Lord's, the law of the Lord is perfect, he's also saying Jesus alone is perfect. And therefore, Jesus alone can revive the soul. When he says that God's word is trustworthy, he's saying that Jesus alone is trustworthy and therefore he can make wise the simple. That he alone is right and can enlighten the heart. He alone is radiant and bring light to the eyes. He alone is pure and endures forever. And he alone is altogether righteous. And therefore, Jesus is more precious than gold. He is sweeter than the honey, than honey from the comb. Because see, in seeing the law and in seeing your sin, you've got to run to God's grace. And in seeing God's grace, you experience his love and know that he accepts you solely through the sacrifice of Christ alone. That in coming to the word of God as we hear his voice, we always have, after coming to his word, have to run to the gospel. We've got to run to our foundation where our identity is found. Because see, when it says in Scripture that God revives the soul, what it says is he revives the psyche. He revives the identity. That when I come to God and I hear his love and I see his grace, what he's doing is he's setting my identity right. Because see, out in the world, I put my identity in many places, and often I think we have put our identity in our failures and in our faults. But see, instead of walking in our brokenness, he wants us to walk in our strength and our identity. To know that the reason we are loved by him is we're covered through the sacrifice of Christ and he sees us through his grace. And that what Christ has done is he has fulfilled every aspect of the law that we are to perform. So that when we come to his word, every time we see our failure, we see his success. Every time we see our brokenness, we see his perfection. And every time we see that, we realize how more and more we are covered by his grace his mercy, and his love, which means God's word begins to become a delight. Because in seeing his word, we see his love, we see his power, and we fall more deeply in love with the God who has truly loved us. Because the reality is we were so sinful that Christ had to die for us, and yet we were so loved that he wanted to die for us. See, as we come to his word, what we need to learn to see is the gospel. And see, in that, we begin to become the people he's created us to be. And we find in him our delight, our joy, and in that, our peace. Hey, let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, you've given us your word. And so often, we do not spend the time to allow the distractions of this world to fade. Father, I think so often we come to it as if we come to a pill or as, we, as, as if we come to something that should instantly begin to reshape our heart. And yet, Lord, you tell us the secret to, to reading the word is meditation. That it's not enough just to read. It's, it's about thinking. It's rejoicing. It's identifying in ourselves where your Holy Spirit is convicting us and then admitting, Father, this is, this is where I need to change. And knowing that we're saying all of this in the presence of one who is so holy and mighty and yet accepts us and calls us out of slavery into light as the children of God. Father, help us this week to allow the song that we have and the prayer that we pray to be, Lord, may the words of my mouth 
May the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Help us, Father, this week to listen to you. In Jesus' name.